everyone, and welcome back to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which it seems people have always lived. What do our sacred stories have to teach us as white people about our role in resistance in showing up in liberation? The theme song you heard is a recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's song for the freedom movement, We Are Building Up a New World. This recording is from a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December of 2014. It was led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for our podcast. I'm Reverend Jean Jeffress. I'm back with you during this time of surging COVID-19 infections and deaths. And oh yeah, the deadly violent coup attempt to overthrow the peaceful transfer of power in our nation's capital. I'm an associate pastor in a local United Church of Christ in Northern California in what's called the South Bay or Silicon Valley. I live in the city of Oakland in what is called the East Bay Both the South Bay and the East Bay exist on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Ohlone people. This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and is particularly designed for white people, white Christians. The idea is that white people will talk to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe that white people, like many of you listening now, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, speaking up, showing up, disrupting and interrupting white supremacy wherever we find it, including in our own Christian tradition. White people have some extra work to do, and I think that's pretty obvious at this point, at every point. We'd love to hear from you, especially from black and brown listeners, and from listeners of all faith traditions. Let us know how you think we're doing. The word is resistance. In this episode, I will start with an excerpt from a book entitled Our Racist Presidents by Melvin Steinfeld. This book was written in 1972, thus the sort of archaic language. Start with chapter one, George Washington, our first racist president. George Washington was America's first racist president. Although he did invite black poet Phyllis Wheatley, a one-time slave, to visit him at the revolutionary headquarters in 1776, it must not be forgotten that he was a slaveholder throughout his adult life. While it is true that he provided in his will for the freeing of his own slaves, during his lifetime he was not above callous mistreatment of some of his slaves. For example, after one of his slaves, Tom, had run away from his plantation repeatedly, Washington sold him with the advice to the new owner that Tom be kept, quote, handcuffed, lest he should attempt escape, end quote. In October of 1775, General Washington issued an order banning the enlistment of Negro soldiers in the Continental Army. It was only after the British had succeeded in luring slaves to escape and fight for the king that the revolutionary leaders were compelled to reverse their prohibition against the enlistment of black soldiers. Necessity, not changed sentiments, 
caused Washington to reverse his racist stance on that issue. When the Revolutionary War ended, Washington wanted to have the escaped slaves who fought for the British return to their quote-unquote owners. On April 15, 1783, Congress instructed Washington to arrange for the return of American property, a term that included slaves who had fought for the British in exchange for promises of freedom. After Washington met with British representative on May 6, 1783 to negotiate this item, he filed a disappointing report. Basically, the British weren't going to return those black folks. That was the disappointing report. In 1786, Washington wrote a letter to Robert Morris in which he expressed the difficult, the, the conflict shared by so many slaveholders about owning slaves. A typical racist belief, the myth of the happy slave, is revealed in his letter. In effect, Washington's letter shows his views to be in opposition to those of some of his distinguished non-slaveholding contemporaries, such as Benjamin Franklin. Franklin's service as president of the Pennsylvania Society, an organization devoted to abolition of slavery, stands in sharp contrast to the actions and many of the words of George Washington. George Washington's words, action, and policies in his two terms as president of the United States did nothing to challenge institutional racism, nor did he initiate any proposals for the re re reduction of overt racism. If America deserves to be called a racist country, then there is no question about George Washington's right to be considered the father of this country. For who can take pride in a letter written two days before the 4th of July, 1776, by George Washington that says, Sir, with this letter comes a Negro Tom, which I beg favor of you to sell in any of the islands you may go to for whatever he will fetch and bring me in return from him one hogshead of best molasses, one ditto of best rum. Thus, to satisfy his desire for drink, the man destined to become the first president of the United States sold a black man down the river. The Declaration of Independence promulgated two days later obviously did not mean independence for all. That is from Our Racist Presidents from Washington to Nixon by Melvin Steinfeld from 1972. How things have changed and how they have not changed. It has been a hell of a January. Today is the 14th, and these 14 days have felt like nine dog years. On November 8th, 2016, I was on my way to Standing Rock to provide support for friends of mine who were planning on joining any water protection actions that they could while we were there. We lost our radio signal somewhere in South Dakota, where there seems only to be land and sky. When the signal returned as we approached where we were staying in North Dakota, we learned who had won the presidency, and I wept because I knew that January 6, 2021 was coming, 
as an Enneagram six, I feel totally vindicated. What we saw was an attempt by white supremacists, white nationalists, with a growing list of lawmakers and members of law enforcement agencies across the country who were essentially trying to overthrow the transfer of power and install a dictator. Some of these people truly believe that the election was stolen. Some of them know it wasn't, but they don't care. They want their guy in power by any means. What we saw was fascism in the coup stage because we didn't do anything about it in the caging baby stage or in the forced sterilization stage. This country is built on a solid diet of slavery and genocide, two of fascism's favorite things. And those chickens are coming home to roost. I've been glued to the news like it's an IV drip with a morphine pump. So I'm really not sure how spiritual I am right now or even what I have to say to you all but I'm gonna give it a try. Somehow friends, we need to find a way to make love more accessible than hate. We need to find a way to make vulnerability popular. We need to make interdependence go viral. We must find a way to make dignity great again. I know this seems inane in the face of everything absurdly simple, potentially even offensive. How can I talk about love when there are so many people who need to be held accountable for everything that's just happened, for everything that's been happening? There needs to be consequences. It's true. There does need to be consequences, and I hope there are some, but I'm not holding my breath. The president did get peached yesterday as at real Gollum Trump calls it. If you don't know about Gollum J. Trump, look him up on Twitter. He still has his account. But aside from possibly being embarrassing for the president, I don't know what impeachment really does, but I'm not a political scientist, so I guess we'll see. I've never found much hope or satisfaction in the shiny halls of power. I want it to be there, but it just isn't. Like every time I go to Trader Joe's, I end up wandering the aisles, looking for that certain something that is going to be the thing, the answer to my life. Of course, now with COVID, I try to get the hell out of there as fast as I can, but I digress. Love, vulnerability, interdependence, dignity. These are the things we need, the things we are always talking about the way to transformation, to true belonging, to truly being known and seen. And then we live in this world that seems more broken and irreconcilable every day. In the context of this massive shit show, I will turn to the words of the psalmist in Psalm 139, 1 through 6, and 13 through 18. If it is safe for you to do so, when you listen to this reading of the psalm, close your eyes, focus on your breath, and decide for the duration of the reading, at least, that you, are, that you absolutely believe the words you are hearing. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from far away. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, O oh Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. 
Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high, I cannot attain it. For it was you who formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works that I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes beheld my unformed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me, when none of them as yet existed. How weighty to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! I try to count them. They are more than the sand. I come to an end. I am still with you. is about love. It's about a deep love between God and the psalmist. And it, but it is not a one-way love. Sometimes psalms are all adoration or lamentation on the part of the writer speaking to what seems to be a distant God. But Psalm 139 has a sense of togetherness. The psalmist and God together at the breakfast table, finishing each other's sentences, knowing how the other likes their toast. The psalmist is totally God's. The God doesn't hold that power over them, but rather provides a resting place, a place where the psalmist can be vulnerable, a place where the psalmist can be dependent, a place where there is dignity in the human desire and need to be loved, to be long, to be part of something bigger, bigger, and for that to be the point. Of course, there are the last six verses that are all about God killing the wicked, but the, the lectionary leaves that out, so we'll skip it for now. Love, vulnerability, interdependence, dignity. These are the things that we talk about so often on these podcasts, in our sermons, in our movement work. White supremacy doesn't value any of these things. Five people died from that insurrection, including a police officer. I guess not even blue lives matter when it comes to the stampeding rage of white supremacy. In the last podcast episode I did called The White Supremacy Covenant Sucks, I asked us to imagine that every person of color was beamed away to a better planet where they didn't have to deal with white supremacy and that we truly had a big white nation. It wouldn't take long before we were tearing each other apart because we are already tearing each other apart. I said in that last episode that we, white people that is, we don't love us. We don't love us. White culture, if that is a thing, I think it is a thing, white culture is so disconnected from the earth and from any pre-colonial ancestry. The trauma of colonialism, even when those who came before us, our white ancestors, were the perpetrators, even when they were the perpetrators, that trauma lives in our DNA and is woven inextricably with white supremacy. White supremacy 
deeply mangles us and untethers us spiritually from whose we are. We need the love of Psalm 139. That love is a resting place to which we must invite each other, a place to be vulnerable, to depend on each other, to be human, a place where we dismantle white supremacy, not by tearing it to pieces and tearing each other to pieces, but by simply abandoning it because we no longer need it. In the fire next time, James Baldwin said, white people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist for it will not be needed. We don't need white supremacy, white friends. It needs us. It's time to break up. My call to action this week is to go get your cousins. Seriously, if you have any cousins that were at that insurrection, if it is safe for you to do so, go get them. There's also a call to take action to impeach and expel by signing up here. And the here is a little blue word here, right in the transcript where, you'll, where I'm saying it. You'll see it when you look at the transcript. You sign up. And then you can text EXPEL 230403. There's pretty much no chance the president will be expelled from office before his term is up, but I guess it doesn't hurt to try. And if you live in Missouri or Texas, you could always pressure Senators Hawley and Cruz to resign. I looked for petitions for those, but I didn't find any. And as more lawmakers surface as potentially being involved in what happened, we will have a lot of work to do. So let's keep that in mind. The next call to action is download the Surge Community Safety for All Congregational Action Toolkit. You can download that here. Another little blue here is in the transcript. And there will be a bit more information about it in the resource section of the transcript. Thank you so much for joining me from wherever you are in this world today. Let us know how your action goes. We'd love to hear from you all please comment on our SoundCloud, Twitter, or Facebook pages. Tune in next week for a resistance word from Reverend Margaret Ernst. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to our podcast. Transcripts are available as well on our website, which includes references, resources, and action links. And finally, and certainly not least, a huge thanks, as always, to our sound editor this week, Maxwell Pearl. Thank you, Max. Blessings to you all in what you do. Love and liberation to you all. Stay safe. Wear a mask. Hold on just a little while longer. Until next time. I'm Dean Jeffers. Oh.